very warm welcome to the Brexit Briefing, a brand new weekly guide exclusive to Talk Podcasts, bringing you an honest analysis on all the latest developments as the United Kingdom prepares to leave the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. Join us each week as we dispel the myths and set the record straight about all that's been happening with the Brexit process. Well, it's good to be back. This is the first Brexit briefing of 2018, and we've got one big item on the agenda, really. Last Wednesday evening, the EU withdrawal bill cleared the House of Commons after MPs approved it by 324 votes to 295. Labour opposed it on a whip and only a tiny number of Labour MPs rebelled against that party whip. The legislation now goes to the House of Lords, but it is likely to return to the Commons when peers propose a number of amendments. So, what exactly happened on Wednesday? Why did it happen? And what happens next? This was the third reading of the EU Withdrawal Bill. First of all came two hours of votes on amendments proposed by MPs which the government defeated in the lobby. As well as repealing the 1972 European Communities Act, which brought Britain into the EU, or more specifically its predecessor, the EEC, the EU Withdrawal Bill is also designed to transfer all existing Brussels law into UK legislation. The big controversy appeared on the surface anyway to be around the so-called Henry VIII powers. Crucially, all existing EU legislation will be copied across into domestic UK law to ensure a smooth transition on the day after Brexit. This matters because there are believed to be 12,000 EU regulations in force while Parliament has passed 7,900 statutory instruments implementing EU legislation and 186 acts which incorporate a degree of EU influence. The total body of European law dating back to 1958 is known as the, let me get this right, Aquis Communitaire. It binds all member states and in 2010 was estimated to consist of about 80,000 items, covering everything from workers' rights to environment and trade. As well as regulations, this includes EU treaties, directions and European Court of Justice rulings. The EU creates new diktats all the time, and the UK will continue to abide by them until it formally leaves in March 2019. So what is the problem? On the surface, it appears that the Labour Party dislikes what are colloquially known as these Henry VIII powers I mentioned a moment ago, after the Statute of Proclamations in 1539. That's where it gets its name from. What this means in the current context is that ministers will be able to make changes to the statute book without going through the usual parliamentary scrutiny process. This all sounds very nasty and undemocratic, but these powers are an absolute necessity and are nothing to be concerned about provided they are limited and defined. For example, in many instances there will be a need to amend a bill to take out a reference to an EU body serving as a regulator and replace it with a reference to a UK regulator. It would be a hideous waste of parliamentary time based on the figures I just gave you 
to have to put each and every reference before the House and would clog up parliamentary business completely, something Labour knows full well. Ministers have already taken steps to reassure critics that such measures will be time-limited and will not be used to make policy changes. The government estimates that between 800 and 1,000 measures known as statutory instruments will be required to make sure the process functions properly. So why did Labour MPs do what they did? Why did they behave the way they did? Well, the way I see it, you've got to remember that about 80% of Labour MPs are essentially either Blairites or Brownites, wholly committed to the EU project. Of those Labour MPs, only four voted against their party's whip and with the government on this occasion. They are Kate Hoey, Frank Field, John Mann and Graham Stringer. And what I think the Labour Party was particularly going for this time is that there are local elections coming up in London in the next few months and London voted by some distance to remain in the European Union and Labour wants to shore up its support base within the London bubble. One other observation I would make in relation to these uh, Henry VIII powers is that if the government abused the use of them in any way, it would be politically suicidal. Labour would wipe the floor with them at the next election if they did that. So if they were to use it to repeal workers' rights or introduce anti-environmental legislation, Labour would trounce them. And don't think the government doesn't know that. And Labour pretending now to be concerned about it doesn't really wash with me. So, what happens next? One thing you can be sure of is that the Lords will not block the bill. And the reason is that would completely destroy their legitimacy. Um, they're not going to do that. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been muting, saying the Conservatives could create 200 new peers to make sure it gets through. They may create some new peers. It won't be anything like as many as 200. But the Lords will not block it. The game will be a lot more subtle than that. And the real action will start when peers vote on amendments to the bill. There may be a few attempts at what is expected to be an extra-long committee stage starting after the February recess, but that'll just be the start of the games. Keep your eye out for reports from normally unexciting groups like the Lord's Delegated Powers Committee and the Constitution Committee. They have already criticised the bill and you can be as good as certain that they'll do so again. I'm recording this podcast on Sunday the 21st of January and I'm expecting the week ahead to be comparatively quiet. Peers have their second reading debate on Tuesday the 30th of January and you can expect at least a 100 lords and baronesses to put their names down to speak. The debate will extend across two days. My figure of 100 might well be a conservative estimate actually. Most of the serious action will come at the report stage, after Easter, and the expectation is that pro-EU peers will load the bill with every booby trap they can come up with. Lords Adonis and Heseltine and many others will be involved in that, you can be sure of it. Peers have been warming up by defeating the government on amendments to the sanctions and anti-money laundering bill and the Data Protection Bill just recently. 
If you doubt their determination to block the Henry VIII's powers for ministers, take a look at the speech by Lord Judge, the former Lord Chief Justice of England, who led one of last week's rebellions on the powers given to ministers on money laundering offences. These lords are serious about making life difficult for the government. The result will be a bout of parliamentary ping-pong between the Lords and the Commons, possibly extending to the verge of the Whitson recess, so some months into the future. The government is in danger on some issues. Watch out for the provisions on devolved powers, where Scottish and Welsh Conservative MPs could find themselves in very awkward positions. So the government's majority in the Commons could be in trouble there. Interesting times ahead indeed. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the website. The first edition of Talk Motoring with Elliot Spiteri is available right now. Elliot previews the 2021 Baby Mini SUV, McLaren's $1 million Senna hypercar, the Porsche 911 Next Generation and the Lamborghini Urus. He also looks at the legal implications of contradictory government advice and subsequent tax policy on diesel cars. And coming soon to talk podcasts, radio legend Tony Horn with the Dead Good Podcast. Tony looks back at the lives of recently deceased people, both famous and not so famous. Those of you who live in the northeast of England will no doubt remember Tony from his long run on the Metro Radio Breakfast Show. And those of you in the Northwest may well remember him from the Century FM breakfast show. Tony can currently be heard between 10am and 2pm on Wish FM in Wigan and St. Helens. And he also does the Sunday breakfast show on the same station from 8am until midday. Check him out. I aim to ensure that the Brexit briefing does roughly what it says on the tin. And when I'm going to move on now to talk in the last few minutes about the situation in Calais, I do think it's connected because, look, first things first, let's all be very, very grateful that the United Kingdom is not part of the EU's Schengen area, where people can travel throughout the European Union without a passport. The next point I would make is I don't take this situation with refugees lightly. Of course, I have a great deal of sympathy with people from other countries, particularly those in the Middle East, who are fleeing their homelands in fear of their lives. And in many cases, particularly those of any denomination of Christian or Jewish faith, Syria is probably a very scary place to be at the moment, as indeed is Iraq. So I have a great deal of personal sympathy with anyone wanting to flee lands which are plagued by war and conflict and are seeking a better quality of life elsewhere. I am also fully aware that a lot of the problems in Syria have been caused by Britain taking sides in a conflict it doesn't really understand. To put it simply, and I haven't heard many mainstream news outlets explain the Syria conflict very well, it's essentially a four-sided conflict between the troops loyal to President Assad, ISIS the Kurds, and the group we appear to have chosen to back with our military intervention in Syria, the Al-Nusra rebels, which if you bother to look into who these people are, they are essentially Al-Qaeda by another name. And I had an argument recently with um, Stephen Doughty MP, the the MP for my constituency, Cardiff South and Penarth, 
who decided that he was going to back military intervention in Syria in the House of Commons, which he did on several occasions over the last few years. And I asked him to explain to me how the al-Nusra rebels he wanted Britain to support were in any way an improvement on the Assad government, and he could not do so. He did not answer the question. Two of his supporters on the Stephen Doughty Facebook page accused me of being an ISIS supporter for daring to question this. That is the sort of stupidity you're up against when you try and argue with some of these people. These these two people, incidentally, at least one of them was ex-military and should know better than to go around making stupid accusations. I was always an opponent of President Assad. The difference between me and these new Labour types is that I was also an opponent of President Assad in 2002 when the red carpet was rolled out for him when he met the then Prime Minister Anthony Blair in Downing Street and the Queen in Buckingham Palace. Images of that visit can easily be found on the internet if you want to look them up. So I'm fully aware of Britain's role in destabilising Syria. And by the way, another thing, did you know that thanks to Britain's involvement in the overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi, that Libya is now in effect four different countries and has been plunged into utter chaos? Funny how we don't hear about that on the mainstream news as well, isn't it? But anyway, I digress. I do, as I say, have sympathy with the refugees. And I do agree that the situation in Calais needs addressing. And £45 million to strengthen our borders is nothing. Because what that's what? One day's EU membership fees? But can somebody tell me something else? What checks have been made to ensure that any refugees we allow into this country are, number one, not Muslim extremists, and number two, have attitudes towards women that are compatible with British attitudes towards women. And by that I mean, I do not want a repeat of the sex attacks that Germany has seen in Cologne and elsewhere taking place on British shores. I think these are quite reasonable questions to ask, yet I've yet to hear a sensible answer to either of them. And one final thought. Where have all the news reports on the situation in Iran gone? Why have we suddenly stopped hearing about that? I'll leave you to work that one out. Anyway, that's all for this edition of the Brexit Briefing. I've been Marcus Stead. Um, I'd welcome your feedback. Uh, comment on Facebook, on the Facebook page by all means, or email me directly at marcusstead, or one word, at hotmail.co.uk. That's marcusstead at hotmail.co.uk. I'll catch you for another Brexit Briefing next week. See ya.